Well, good morning again, everybody. Glad that you've joined us today. And it's supposed to be warmer today. It's been kind of an up and down week this week with the temperatures. You get some really cold days and then some decent days like yesterday. But hopefully, it'll get a little bit warmer. We can enjoy the day outside a little bit. But I'm glad that you've all joined us here today. Um, you know, as we've been going through our worship service so far, I don't know, you could just, some Sundays you can just feel a special heart about the messages and about the prayers and about the songs and things like that. And I know I've had conversations with Dave before about his song selections and stuff, and there's always a few that will touch me in different ways. Um, and today's no exception. But you know, as I start our service or our message time today, I just want to start with a question. My question is, I want to go to Fairmont Park in Council Bluffs after church. How do I get there? It's kind of a specific question in terms of the location, but how do you explain to someone else how to get there? I would say first you would need to know where it is, be, to be able to explain to somebody. Otherwise, if you don't know where it is, then you are just making them even more lost and confused. Maybe you're the type of person that likes to give directions by using landmarks. Go to the exit by the high V, take 156 paces from the light red mailbox, turn left when you hear the beehive. Some of you may get that reference. Maybe you're the type of person that knows all the street names, knows the distances, knows the traffic patterns, and will explain the fastest time to get there. Maybe you're the type of person that knows somebody that lives near the park and says, well, just get to that person's house and then give directions from there. Maybe you're the type of person that doesn't want to be bothered and just says, just look it up on the phone. Punch it into the navigation on your car, assuming that they have that. You know, growing up, maybe you used AAA and you got some of them trip ticks where they would highlight the route out for you. Or you had the big maps from the gas station and your mom was navigating as your dad is driving down the road listening to music and your mom's for the 15th time saying, look, you've gone more than an inch. We've had to miss our turn by now. Now, giving directions can be difficult. There are many ways that mo people's minds can work. And the way that your mind works is unique to you. And perhaps you think somebody that has a different way to communicate is just crazy. Why would you try to explain it that way? But, you know, when you think about how you communicate, you know that communication is very important. You know, maybe as you address how you communicate with others, maybe you have a very professional job and you have to be very formal in the communication that you use. So you're used to using that type of language. Maybe you're a student or a college student and you're coming up and having to navigate the whole pronoun gauntlet that is going on in our culture. Maybe you're just a little bit older and you don't care what people think and you're just brash in how you communicate with others. 
Communication is one of those things that is needed in every relationship. And we see how it is lacking. We see the importance, but yet we see how when you have a lack of communication, it deteriorates our relationships. Today, as we continue our talk on the offices, we're going to focus on the office of the evangelist. Someone who had the important role of communicating the gospel message. As a believer, you can see the importance of communication. For a Christian to be able to present the gospel message. The importance that that has to effectively communicate the good news. So again, as I had just said, the role of communicating the gospel message is a primary understanding of an evangelist. But how do we understand the evangelist as an office? Now, outside of the last two of the apostle and the prophet, which are a little bit more controversial, there's not a lot of debate within this term in terms of the understanding. Um, Some denominations do have an official title or official role for an evangelist. It is a hireable position. Um, So that could be one definition of the term. The CMA will no longer have this role on a national level. They are pushing that back down to the district level or the local level, kind of a fallout from the Ravi Zacharias scandal. But, you know, as, as we go through and think about evangelists, we understand that they are, to proclaim, they are people who love to proclaim the good news. The Greek word, word um, has its root in evangelion, which means gospel, glad tidings. So this is a person who is bringing glad tidings, an individual who announces the gospel. And the early use of this term suggests that it's a person who would go place to place announcing the gospel message. Originally, this term is a function. It's not an office at all. As an office, what we see there in Ephesians 4.11, it's more of an official position at that point in time, someone who had the gifting or did this role in the church. And there's just a few other scriptures that talk about this outside of Ephesians 4.11. And we mentioned it last week. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at a few different passages in Acts today and also in 2 Timothy. So we're going to be kind of going all over the place. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 21. And we'll hit that verse again that we talked about last week, seeing how Philip is named as an evangelist. All right, so Acts 21, verse 8. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Okay, so it's a very simple verse. Um, We see him being named here as the evangelist. Now, perhaps you can see how this can get a little tricky, because wasn't Philip an apostle? I mean, it kind of gets difficult to keep all these names straight. But a big clue within that passage is that he was one of the seven, not one of the twelve. So then your mind thinks, okay, who are the seven? What's it talking about? 
And maybe you've got a Bible that has references and can help lead you to where it talks about. Thankfully, it does. So let's turn back to Acts chapter 6 and read about the seven. Acts chapter 6, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you, among, from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So these are the seven men that is how Peter or how Philip is one of the seven. And you look at these seven men and how they're described, all of them were of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And these men were chosen to do what? Wait on tables. Handle the distribution to the widows. I mean, these are men that are full of the Spirit. Doesn't that seem like kind of a waste? Wouldn't we view it that way, to have these men relegated to this task, especially when we see what happens to Stephen in the next few chapters. We might have a little bit of knowledge of Philip, but to have them waiting on tables? See, I think that this is a precursor to ministry that is a necessity, a precursor to having an office or a position whether it's a pastor, preacher, apostle, prophet, whatever title you want to put onto it. A person cannot be so excited about getting up and being in charge and having power and all of these great things in ministry if they're not willing to serve. Jesus lays this stipulation out in John 13 as he washes the disciples' feet. So many times you get people up here in a pulpit that are just craving the power, wanting the fame, wanting the notoriety. I can remember when I first talked to my home pastor when I said I had a call into ministry. And he said, hey, just remember, you don't go into ministry for the money. I'm like, duly noted. You know, understanding you can make money elsewhere. But there's a specific purpose why you're being called to ministry, and that is to serve. You know, we see how this type of mentality then, it, it allows us to understand the heart and the nature behind the offices. Because for a leader, if it's all about the gift or if it's all about the office, it becomes about them. 
and not using the gift as a tool to serve God by serving others, by equipping others. Now, we don't see any other mention of the five other individuals from any other point in the Bible. We do see the story of Stephen in the next couple of chapters, and then we see the story of Philip in chapter 8. So go ahead and turn over to chapter 8 in Acts, and we'll read more about his ministry. So just kind of get the full context. It's going to be long, but I'm going to read all of chapter 8. So make some notes in your Bible, highlight some things, underline things if you have questions and all that fun stuff. Let's begin. So this, of course, is right after the stoning of Stephen. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out, and many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south 
to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through the, as, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So a larger portion of Scripture and a lot that is going on in there. Hopefully you can take notice of some of the roles we can see um, in several places within this text. The emphasis on Philip's role, as well as the apostles, to preach the good news, to proclaim Christ, to tell others about Jesus. You know, it didn't matter where they went. You think of the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. It didn't matter that they were in Samaria speaking to these half-breed people that they hated with a passion. Philip and the apostles preached the gospel. It didn't matter that Saul was rounding up all of the people that were claiming to be Christians, going house to house and imprisoning people. It didn't matter that they were facing this persecution. They still went proclaiming the gospel wherever they were going. Now, there are some issues within this chapter that we're not going to focus on today in terms of the roles of the apostles and the evangelists, the whole baptism of the Spirit section. That's a different message. But what I do want us to understand is the differences between the roles, how all of the apostles were evangelists as they preached the word, but not all the evangelists were apostles. So there was differences within the understandings of the early church. Evangelists were the missionaries who would take the gospel to new places. Now there is belief within the church today that the evangelists succeeded the apostles after those original 12 died in terms of how they were proclaiming the gospel. But we understand an evangelist 
as someone who preaches the gospel. It's a pretty simple understanding. You know, and I think when we look at that understanding, just like with the message last week about prophets, I think it's hard to keep the office and the gift separated, or at least even the office and the basic charge given to every Christian to share the good news. I mean, we definitely see many people sharing the good news in Scripture, but not all of them are called evangelists. So what would be the distinction for this type of an office? You know, and as I ended the message last week, I think it's kind of a similar place to where I said, with a prophet, or if you hear something prophetic, you would just know that it's of God through discernment. I believe that you just know when you see somebody that, yes, they are an evangelist because they have this passion to share about Jesus, whether it's a hired position or not. It's just different from that general charge given to every believer to share the good news. Now, even though we're all called to evangelize, some of us may do it while sweating profusely because we don't like to share. You know, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking of some good practical applications today. I mean, what if I just stopped the message now and said, okay, let's go downtown Minden and go door to door and evangelize. Some of you would be going to your car, hopefully just to go drive down to Minden because it's kind of cold out. Some of you might be excited because you need this push in your faith to step outside of your comfort zones a little bit and getting that type of guidance, similar to what we did last August as we broke up into groups, sharing our testimonies, sharing the gospel message. We understand that everybody is gifted a little bit differently in how we serve the Lord. And with evangelism, even though we have this general call for all believers to do it, you can clearly see a difference when someone is called to it, when they are gifted in this area. I can see how those differences also change over time. You know, for my three older kids, uh, when they were in public school, you could, I could see the heart that they had to evangelize. It would start with something simple as an invitation to Awana, you know, inviting their friends, and then it opened up a conversation to where they realized, wait, you don't know who Jesus is? How do you not know who Jesus is? Because they've been raised with it. They think it's normal that you just, you believe in Jesus, you know who he is. But here now, now they're talking to kids that don't know who he is, that don't have a Bible, so they're giving their own Bibles to them, telling them about Jesus. And as a dad, it's like, all right, I did something right there. But you know, as, as they get older, you can see how some of that fire dwindles a little bit. I think that's true of all of us. As we get older in our faith, sometimes that passion that we had from when we were a new Christian dwindles. Sometimes the abilities that we have um, to share the good news dies down because we have a little bit more apprehensiveness. We're a little bit more anxious about what we share and who we're sharing it with. And it's hard to take that first step. Even though we know we need to go and share the gospel, it's hard to take that first step to open up a conversation sometimes. We become filled with anxiety. You know, Paul gives a little bit of instruction on evangelism to Timothy. So turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4.
So I want to read the, the first five verses of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the ju- who is to judge living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul is giving Timothy a charge here, and within this charge, there are nine imperatives within these verses. Now, when we read this passage, what's the imperative that we like to focus on? You hear it in almost every church, preach the word. And every church thinks, all right, we're a church that preaches the word. It's all them other churches that don't preach the word. We got to preach the word. But there's nine other or eight other imperatives within this text. So sometimes it's easy then to miss when he says, do the work of an evangelist. We get so focused on what might be right in front of us at times. And when we look at these, this list of imperatives here, you know, when you start with the first few, being ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, I mean, that seems to go well with preaching the word. Um, and I would say that with all of these, they can overlap for sure, like if you're preaching the word, sometimes you're rebuking, sometimes you're exhorting. But they're all distinct words. They're all imperatives. So we have to understand what is meant with each word and how their, their differences are there. You know, he is also to be sober-minded, which means to be self-controlled, to be restrained. Enduring suffering, it's an imperative That's a fun imperative, isn't it? It means you have to walk through it. You persevere through suffering. You shouldn't look for ways around it or trying to escape from it. It's not what people want to hear. And then fulfilling your ministry. You know, ministry is tough because we like to think of ministry as the pastor's job. That's what he gets paid for. I think we'll talk a little bit more about that um, in 1 Corinthians 14. But you know, church today has become very pastor-centric in a lot of ways, which is not a biblical model. Where you see one person sharing their gift with a congregation of 70, 80 people, thousands of people. Where you, where you come together to meet and he takes up half of the time. Church is focused too much on one person. I mean, it should be focused on one person, but that person should be Jesus, not me. Where we're all collectively using our gifts to worship him. Many times, ministry, other than a pastor's ministry, is relegated to the building. What happens in here, that's ministry. The different programs that we use. 
But you know, I believe just like with giftings of the Spirit, how everybody is gifted differently, I think that there's different callings on everybody's life as well. A general call and then specific calls. Ministries that the Lord gives only you because of how you are wired. Ministries that you need to fulfill. And ministries are different than jobs. It requires a different mindset. And that's been, that's been a hurdle that I've had to try to overcome and fall back into all the time to where I can view this as a job. And it becomes a job. And then you forget your first love. You know, because you're constantly on and you're constantly doing these things. So that by the end of the day, you're just like, I don't want to read the Bible anymore. You know, I want to do something different. So you, there's a difference between ministry and a job. And I read this this week from an anonymous source I wanted to share with you. A job is one you choose. A ministry is one Christ chooses for you. A job depends on your abilities. A ministry depends on your availability to God. In a job you expect to receive, in a ministry you're expected to give. A job done well brings you self-esteem. A ministry done well brings honor to Jesus. In a job you give something to get something. In a ministry you return something that has already been given to you. A job well done has a temporal payment, but a ministry well done brings eternal rewards. You know, thinking about the ministries that we have, where God has called us to be. And, you know, when we focus on this calling to do the work of an evangelist, this charge that Paul gives to Timothy, we want to recognize he's not calling Timothy an evangelist, but rather to do the work of one. And again, it goes back to our definition, understanding that it is proclaiming and spreading the good news, where there is that general call for everyone to be proclaiming and doing that. But for the office, I would say that it would be reserved for those people that the gospel is just always on their tongues. It just comes naturally to them. And again, similar to what we did in August, you know, understanding how, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. And I think back to my opening question about directions and how you communicate. Let's make some connections this morning. One way that you could give the gospel can be like planting a seed, saying, Jesus died for your sins. That's what it says in the Bible. Go look it up for yourself. Similar to why don't you just look it up on GPS? Why don't you just use the navigation? Or maybe when you evangelize, you go book by book, scripture by scripture, through the gospel. You go to all the trainings. You go to all the conferences. And you develop your own system of how to evangelize. This would be like the person who knows all of the street names, the distances, the times that it's going to take to travel to your destination. Or maybe as you're giving the gospel, your testimonies can be intertwined with the gospel message to relate how Jesus has died for your sins, the impact that it's had on your life, those milestone moments in your life. This would be like the person that uses landmarks to give different directions. And again, we might have our preferred ways to share the gospel. 
We might think that the other ways aren't sufficient because they don't match up to your own. But another important distinction is that we need to know where the destination is. Because if we don't know ourselves, then we're just going to make other people lost and confused. So it's important for us to know the gospel message. It's important for us to be living the gospel message so that it is on our lips as we're interacting with other people. You know, people hear things and learn things differently. We teach a child differently than we teach an adult. For that reason, we need to discern in the moment where that person is spiritually in terms of what we can share or what we should share, discerning where the Spirit is guiding us to lead. But I've also run, run into some people that, well, let me back up and say, even through evangelism, we also, and I guess this might have just been assumed, but it's important to say, it is not us who does the saving. It is God that saves. It is the Spirit who saves. But I have met people who think it is just the Spirit who saves and leaves it to that, and I'm just good because I'm saved. And they don't take on the commission or how the Spirit is moving them. Thinking maybe it's not their place. They don't want to explain anything. Maybe they can't explain anything. But you know, to a person who is perishing, what is the cross? It is folly. And throughout scriptures, we see people coming alongside of others to explain the mysteries of God. In Romans 10, one of my favorite lines in Romans 10 is, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel message. We are all called to do this. We are called to be servants and be used by the Spirit. And really, no two presentations of the gospel are explained in the same way. As it said, um, you know, when you look through Scripture, many times in the Bible, it can be recorded as, and the, and the apostles preached the gospel and many people came to faith. And I know this because most of you are like me. My personality types like, okay, I'm annoyed by this because I want to know what he said, I want to know how he said it, and I want to know the steps of what I'm supposed to do. What's the formula to do this? But you look throughout Scripture and you see different levels of detail that's given with the gospel message. And again, as I said, knowing the gospel in your own heart, living that out daily, means that it's written on your heart fresh, where you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You know, whether or not a person is spiritual, maybe they already believe that God is the creator. So you might not have to start there, but you can always back up and say, you understand that God created everything good, right? Then it was because of the fall that we have all fallen. We disobeyed God's command. Because we disobeyed, we sinned. That penalty was death. So we're all destined to die. We die spiritually at that time to where we were separated from God and we began to die physically. But God set in motion this plan of salvation to send his son to die in our place, to pay that debt that we could not pay by going to the cross, by living a sinless life, by offering that sinless perfection on our behalf.
know, when I think about what Jesus did, when I think about the sin that I've had in my life, and the fact that he loved us so much that he would die for us, I mean, if that does not move your heart, And he simply promises everlasting life to those who would believe in him. You know, when you think about the different high points of of the gospel, depending on the person that you're talking to, you have those high points. You have those tenets that that you can fall back onto. You can use different scriptures. You know, I think of 1 Corinthians 15. The first part, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I have also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. That in accordance with Scripture. That's what you would unpack from the Old Testament, of what points to Jesus. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then to 500 other brothers. Or maybe you think of Peter's address in Acts chapter 2, right after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and he goes into this sermon message pointing people to Jesus. Or you think of John 3.16, and just expounding that verse to someone. Or Romans 6.23, and going through what sin is, but what God promises in terms of everlasting life. There's so many different ways that you can approach the gospel message. And maybe we're just overwhelmed because there's so many ways. But there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it is in Christ. That is what our messages need to be surrounding We are called, again, it is not us who saves, but we have the responsibility to love others with gentleness and respect, sharing with them the hope that is in us, the hope that is found only in the Lord. We are called to go and share that hope to others who are grasping for straws. This world is searching so desperately for hope, and we have that answer. We have been given grace, and our ministry is to then give grace to others, the grace of Christ. How are we handling that? Some people are better at sharing and evangelizing than others, but let's not forsake the duty that has been given to all of us as believers, to share his love, to share his gospel message because it is the good news unto people who are, who are about to die. So let's pray. Father, as we think about your word and your truth, we praise you for the gospel message. We praise you for how you have instructed us, how you have saved us, and how you have given us the responsibility to serve you by using the gifts, by using the personalities that you have given us for your ministry, to bring you glory. Lord, glory is yours alone. It is not for us. 
So I pray that we would never have a big head and that we can be humble. But Lord, never let us lose sight of the love that you have for us. To understand that it is well with our souls. And because it is well, we cannot keep silent. We must go and share the beauty of your message. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.